settled in, nice and snug, next to all of the top secret documents in your garage. It's replacement level morality, and my name is Joseph. My name's Andrew. We've had quite a bit of news hit the hit the, hit the world since we last talked, my friend. A lot of revelations. Well, I don't. Yeah, it, it, listen. My garage is very empty right now, but I'm pretty sure there are no illegal documents. Pretty sure. It's stunning to me that somehow the Biden operation could be so inept that once they found TS, clearance, whatever, or higher documents, restricted documentation at a random think tank, the Biden used when he was in his post vice presidency years ago and didn't think to themselves, if it's here, if this shit is here, it's probably everywhere, right? If you're his lawyers, wouldn't that be the very first thing you would think like, well, this can't be the only place because this is like a subsidiary place of a subsidiary place of a subsidiary place that he quote worked out of because it was a think tank that was funding this or that. And so he'd be here a couple days a month or something like that. And if this place has, you know, folders with top secret documents in it, what's in his house? You know, like, Ooh, uh, guys, he's been in government for 50 years. We might have a problem. And I say all of that to say, if you know, that's the case. Why do you allow it to drip out like this? Because it's like been four or five times now where it, it has come up and then like two days, it, it boils back down. And then two days later, oh, we found more. Two days later, oh, we searched this and we found more here. And it just makes the story so much worse because at least with the Trump thing it was all in one place. It was locked. It was at Mar-a-Lago. There was a consistency to the story, right? This is just like, what the fuck has Joe Biden been doing his whole life? And he's got all this classified material in every place he's apparently ever been. He just like throws it around like confetti or some shit. Like, what are you doing, bruh? So Machiavelli describes in The Prince how when you're in, when you're governing, you're supposed to make pain as acute and narrow as possible. And you're supposed to make benefits as spread out over over distance and time as possible. So you get a check every two weeks, but you only, yeah, tax day is once a year. Okay. They, they seem to be doing the opposite. <laughs> it's an opposite day? <laughs> Guys, you need to check your calendar. <laughs> you should not be practicing opposite day. Uh, definitely not four opposite days in a row. It's a bad idea. It has to be the greatest political gift by way of incompetence of all time to Donald Trump. He was definitely going to be indicted, and now he almost certainly will not be. Like, be, bar anything else, that's really the first takeaway I have. Isn't being indicted good for him, though? Like, if he's indicted, then it's just, you know, that's how you get Republicans to circle the wagons around Donald Trump. It's... Uh, we have to defend our guy. They're coming for him because the DOJ is politicized. Now we have to like make him in charge and get get him the ability to fire people. I'm not sure that being indicted was wasn't exactly not what he was going for, 
but wasn't the play. I will say then that suggests the Democrats are still incompetent because they would love it if Trump was the front runner. So if if their 3D chess move was get him indicted so that the Republicans will rally around him and drown out DeSantis from being able to to win in the primary states, they have failed at that as well. So they it's a lose lose. Well, we know we know California gun control has saved at least one life because Newsom would have eaten a, a piece of. <laughs> <laughs> if he had access oh man it, it's it, it it's almost unbelievable yet is entirely believable when you consider the principle right joe biden is an idiot he's he's a moron he's a fool he's the kind of guy who thinks himself so part of the machine and so above the rules that he probably didn't think twice about the fact he had a bunch of classified material in his offices but Joseph, Joe Biden, you know? but Joseph, Joseph, he graduated top of his class. Don't you know this? I've heard him lie about this stuff before, but <laughs> I've lost track of the lies. You know, he's so shrouded in myth. He's like Zeus. You know, <laughs> like he's he's not a real being anymore. He's he's some sort of mythical figure who, who, where we only have the you know, some, some sort of text on a clay tablet to explain its origin. I'm going to have to ask someone older than me if they remember the, the old, the, the Joe Biden before his ascension. I remember he was uh diamond Joe in the onion back in his vice presidential days. I, was, what, what are any of those words? Diamond Joe Biden. He was, uh, he was uh, portrayed as this like, Trans Am loving aviator shades wearing, you know, like girl boomer. Yeah. And, and someone even wrote a book about him solving crimes with Barack Obama. Like they were the Hardy boys. It was, it was a total fad and like the, the late second Obama term. That sounds terrible. Oh, it was bad. (laughs) We suffered mightily in 2015. It's what brought us Trump to begin with. The cringe was so much. It just drove us into his arms. That sounds like even worse than a tan suit, actually. Oh God, the tan suit, the tan suit, the fancy mustard—they were all there were low points in those in those years for sure. There's a lot of speculation on if, well, maybe they still indict Trump, but then also have to act against Biden because the fact pattern is so exactly the same, aside from cooperation. That I don't think the public would accept only one party being prosecuted. No, that would be a classic 80% of Republicans and 80% of independents don't trust the media moment where there are the people who can see through and there are the people who can't and they would all be temporarily united as all alliances in politics are temporary, but I think that would do it though. Like that might be where like, nope, the system cannot stand. This is not, this is not okay. And we can all see that. And I think they, they're smart enough to recognize that. So it's going to be, they prosecute Trump and then, you know, say Biden should be impeached for this, but maybe they impeach him and don't convict him. Wait, is this Kamala's master plan? I don't think they dispose of Joe Biden over it. I think that they try to create some sort of punishment scheme that they can say they punished Biden by while pursuing the case against Trump. But 
I think it's just far more likely they find their way out of it on both sides to, without prosecution, which is what they should have do to begin with, because the whole idea that Trump was going to be charged was so thin anyway. Like, not only was he president and his ability to declassify things subject to essentially your ability to read his mind, um, because, the, you know, the system's never been tested in this way. So there is no controls on the president himself's ability to control this process. He is the executive. There is – he doesn't have to sign a piece of paper to say he does something. He merely does it through his act, through his wishing it to be so. And, and that's not – that's not in any law, but it is in the law of real politique. Yeah. That it's probably not the case on any sort of paper that that's how it works. But in practice, the Supreme Court would just never touch that question in a million years because they avoid political questions. And I mean that in the literal sense of like which person is in power. Like Bush v. Gore, they didn't really have a choice. But for the most part, like they do what they can to avoid touching these things. Yeah. And that's the easiest one to avoid because, holy crap, we're absolutely not touching that with a 10-foot pole. Because you need four votes, but really you're not going to choose to vote to grant cert unless you know that you've got four of your colleagues on board with how you want it to come out. It's just all too messy. And laws are not self-enforcing. So even if there's a rule somewhere that he's got to do X, Y, and Z to declassify, well, laws aren't self-enforcing. I'm, I'm sorry you had to grow up this way. And, and oh, there is an argument to be made about things are overclassified as well, to be clear. Oh, it's true. Like, 100%. Like, there's just some stuff that, you know, like uh, uh, an example that was used frequently on commentary over the past week was the lunch menu at Langley is classified every day. It's like, it shouldn't be a state secret that <laughs> you can go get mac and cheese today. You know, like that, that's <laughs> unnecessary. And it's rumored. One of the things that Trump hung on to one of his, one of his documents that he didn't want to part with was an intelligence report about the infidelity of a world leader. He doesn't like and the CIA knows he's like schlepping his mistress or something like that and was in an, an intelligence briefing of like president of Canada is fucking some other chick or something like that. Like, I don't know what it is, right? I mean, that actually sounds reasonable to classify. It's just funny that Trump's like, no, I'm keeping this. Yeah, and he just doesn't like him or whatever and just decides to keep keep that. That's a, one of the source rumors is this is the level of shit he kept was stuff that he enjoyed personally and was super petty. And... You know, everyone knows that's that kind of motivation is to either laziness or ego. He was not going to sell any secrets. No one and neither was Biden either. Right. Like. There should be a, a reasonable era area of error here where, you know, if the National Archives or whatever wants the documents back, they can go get them. But that should really be the end of it. Right. Then Biden goes and searches and finds the stuff and takes it back to the archive. And that's the end of it. Right. Like. Instead, we've made it a felony to even have questioned the motives of the government in this case. No, no not we. Donald Trump did. He, he made this a. He made, it's true. He made this a felony. He 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 chose to make this a pen, uh, because of Hillary Clinton and the emails and the butter emails. I can't believe I have to be the one to bring this up, but I, I, it is my my solemn duty on this podcast to like 
poke and prod optimal levels of Joseph out of Joseph. Okay. Get, just get him at the exact right level. But uh, this was definitely an op from the staffers to like keep this until exactly after the midterms and then make sure that Biden was too weak to run again. Like it's what we're all thinking. It's what we're all thinking. I wish that these guys were that fucking smart. It would give me joy if these White House staffers were so cunning and so cutthroat and so resourceful that after their boss wasn't going to be shown the exit door as a consequence of GOP underperformance in the midterms, that they concocted of the perfect plan by which to try and clip him via some sort of embarrassing political scandal slash forced march impeachment as a consequence of of having to to keep the scales of justice balanced. It but doesn't have fu- to be that complicated. They're not that smart. It doesn't have to be that complicated, though. You just they knew he had him because it's been known for months. Mm-hmm. You hold it till after the midterms because. Obviously, right? Like we're all we're all cynical operatives here. Yep. And then you don't have to scheme in advance. It's just, oh crap! We thought this was a route that he would just get shellacked, right? And then we'd go peacefully into that good night. And I shouldn't say that he's like eighty. <laughs> I mean, it actually, still might happen just because he's eighty. But I, I, the problem with your theory is all of this actually makes much more sense to pull this caper if he got drubbed in the midterms and needed to be gently pushed out somehow, right? Because this is not enough. This isn't a big enough shove. This is, this is some shit no one cares about except for wonks and lawyers and people who love to argue over the rules, right? That's what this matters to it's pieces of paper that say they are or are not secret. And, and if they are properly stored and accounted for, this is the lowest possible stakes to a normal person. And it can pop. It could be. Yeah. But that's not how these operatives think. They think other people are like them. They think other people will think, Oh, this is a big deal. We should depose of him. What a, what a thought that they, they, actually think that this matters like and that i give i'm giving you know i'm steel manning it right like it makes sense in the context of he gets drubbed he's still waffling you're trying to push him out and then suddenly this story comes out and now you fucked up the whole trump prosecution now you got that problem now you've given that leverage away maybe it's time to go you know like that like okay i buy that this is the last shove and he's already when he's already leaning but now that he's like firmly now you're just making a mess for yourself now you're just making your life worse for no reason because it's not going to get him out the door. So either either this was just terrible timing or, or fucking ha- political hacks have gotten a lot stupider over the last six years. But I guess it's, <laughs> it's quite likely that's true. Now that I say it. Okay, so if, if it's option A, what's... Uh... What's the next thing to try to push him out? What's what what's the uh the the next step on the escalatory ladder of make sure my boss can't run for president when he's 83 years old? A disastrous renegotiation with the Republicans over the debt ceiling. 
because that's going to be a drama that plays out for like all of the spring and into the summer because it's like the extraordinary measures run out sometime between May and July or something. And in between that, you're going to have a Supreme Court that probably strips away the attempt at student loan forgiveness. So you're you're going to have all of these L's that are going to stack up in quick succession. Documents issue, L. Supreme Court says this this student loan stuff is bullshit. You can't do it. L. They're they're trying to finally end the COVID lockdown stuff, so that's just gonna go away. They're gonna lose the far left, you know, COVID people. L. And then you have to negotiate with the GOP. We're gonna get into this in our second topic that it wants to fight over the debts ceiling and are I've already made it clear they're willing to shoot the hostage, so you have to, which means you're gonna probably give away some shit that the left isn't going to want you giving away so that you can get get a, a deal out of them. L. And then now you're in midsummer, and if a decision is going to be made about you not running, it basically has to be made then. And that's when you finally might have shoved him enough to get him closer to the door. But I don't think even all of those things together is enough because last year, what was it? Like, or in 2021, it was like Afghanistan and inflation and all this. Like, even worse things happened, <laughs> and he was fine as far as he sees it. So, you know, he was in the 30s in his approval rating already once. And they emerged ultimately successfully because everyone was just remembered how terrible Trump is and how terrible of Trump's people are. And they'd rather have incompetent, senile Joe Biden than anything that's tainted by that. So why wouldn't they, why wouldn't he just say like, no, I'm going to stick around. Fuck it. I can beat Trump again. That's no problem. And by the time he finds out that it's not Trump again, it'll be too late. Your mouth to God's ears. <laughs> I mean, he, he's that's the trap, right? Joe Biden can beat Donald Trump, probably would. But can if we he just can, not like if oh, he can, that'd be the worst. That would be the worst. Yeah, it would. It. I would, believe you said previously there would be no greater sign of a decadent empire in decline than that rematch of these two people that are far too old, far too old. Yeah. You you would, you would hope that the system would not produce that result unless it truly is just no longer functional. I have faith that it won't. If only because, Ron DeSantis seems uniquely positioned to will a different result into existence given the means, motive, and opportunity, which I believe will be presented to him. But he's going to have to work at it. He's going to have to actually, like you said it yourself, as we've said several times in election night, you have to defeat him. The Trump will never go away until he is beaten, you know, where he is sent packing forever. And that will only happen if he loses convincingly in a, in a base battle. With his for his people, when he loses the battle for his people, that'll finally send him to the abyss. But Biden can't beat DeSantis, but he won't know if it's DeSantis he has to beat until he makes the decision on if he's running. And if he runs, no one's going to compete with him. I'm not sure anyone on the Democratic bench can beat DeSantis anyway. It depends on inflation mostly, but I don't think Newsom could. I don't think Buttigieg could. 
I don't think Kamala Bujic, could. Harris, I would say their chances are no or are, are nil. Um, I would say of the three you've mentioned, Gavin Newsom, it stands a better chance. Uh, but I would, I would say DeSantis would be favored. You know, I'd give, I'd, I'd, I'd say he's like a six point favorite in that matchup, but by no, by, by no means, uh, a runaway favorite. He'd be, he'd be, uh, he'd be, you need to give him like 21 points against Kamala Harris. But <laughs> so with, with Newsom, do other people just not like, it feels like the greasy hair thing is a meme that became real. We're like, <laughs> I am terrified of this kind of person that like they're all slick and I know they could send me sand in a desert. Like, I just don't like dealing with them. You are the by far the most diplomatic person that I encounter on a daily basis. And even that I'm like, you just have to keep your eye on them because, you know, they could like they'll like make it sound like a good idea to go kill someone for them. Like, I don't know. I'm so convincing. Extra, I can just, just make so terrifying. I can convince you to go commit murder. Probably. <laughs> but like, do people not get that vibe from Newsom? Because he has never been I, I'm probably not the target audience, but I've never been like remotely sold. I've always been like, shouldn't you be selling used cars somewhere? I mean, you have to remember most people aren't as politically aware as us. And perhaps importantly, most people don't live in California. So they don't really have a sense of what California is like. They have a sense of where they're, what their lives are like. And someone like Gavin Newsom is an excellent liar. And will just spin the story to appeal to the people that he knows, like that he knows are too stupid to pick up on how greasy he is. I say again, this is a man who cut ads to rile up anti-vaxxers in Florida to spite Ron DeSantis, even though he was directly imperiling people's lives by purposefully using their ignorance so that they will make more suboptimal choices. I mean, that is how heartless and sinister Gavin Newsom is. He will find a excellent line to use in the places he must use it to gain power. He, he's clearly capable of whatever sociopathic nonsense you want to invent. Uh, so that's why I think he's got a pretty good chance against uh, a non-incumbent DeSantis in 2024 if they actually had to compete. But if it's if it's uh, against an incumbent DeSantis, I think his chances become far more narrow. I think a DeSantis that has a governing record may be undefeatable for a second term, provided he plays to his his potential. But that's that's it. The documents are just it's. It's going to be a big deal because there's all kinds of novel legal theories that are going to have to get shook out. And there's a lot of crow eating happening right now in the media. That's both hilarious and frustrating. I mean, it's the same thing that happened when Ginsburg died. Right. And everyone suddenly flipped and it's like, yes, there's infinite hypocrisy to go around and you can enjoy it. You can bask in it, but it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. It's like, funny. I would say it's more it's actually more a negative emotion to turn on NPR for the first time in a while and hear a whole national news story dedicated to why it's not such a big deal that Joe Biden had a bunch of documents that were found in a whole bunch of 
buildings and you're like you you liars you abject horrific hack liars how can you possibly be so brazen as to suddenly be simping for your political ally on a public airway like this and not act like what you were saying about Donald Trump ever happened yeah uh Cooperation gets you completely off the hook is news to millions of incarcerated people. Yeah, this this is not how any of this is supposed to work. And weeks ago, it wasn't working this way until suddenly it is. And everyone's already noticed that. And there's no not noticing that. Uh, but that is uh, tiny compared to the consequences if you decide to indict one party for this crime and not the other in broad daylight in front of all of us. Because it's I mean, out now. That's not happening. That's yeah. just not. You're just not that stupid. You don't like you want to talk about like where suddenly everyone realizes what the federal government is willing to do. And you have states who really start to say no to them because right now it's for show, right? The Florida's and the Texas and the red states of the world, they don't cooperate where they can. But for the most part, we all are still under understanding of like the real system here. But what if you you start to have that level of inequity happen and Ron DeSantis sends a bunch of Florida State troopers to Mar-a-Lago when the FBI shows up to arrest Donald Trump and says, you're not allowed to take him. Are they going to shoot each other? Like, what Like what? What if finally you've gone too far and suddenly the independent powers who can wield some level of state force say, no. No, that's, this is, this is not okay. You're not allowed to do this. That's where you're going if you make those decisions. So don't make them. Do you want to talk about money now? I like talking about money. Have you seen the discussions about the debt ceiling? Uh, just a couple of them. I, I've heard there's some there's some kerfluffle on Capitol Hill. Maybe some uh, some payments not being made. <laughs> it's not a surprise that the GOP would decide to use the debt ceiling increase as a leverage to get their kinds of spending priorities uh, passed, right? Like this is, this is politics. You get leverage, use it to get your priorities done. Yay. It's like peanut butter and jelly. I feel like there's like a stock take that this is dangerous and you should negotiate during the budget process. And this is, this is money that's already been allocated and it's already been spent. So you, you don't, uh, you know, the phrase I heard was you don't not raise your credit or you don't not pay your credit card bill because you want to spend less money, which I kind of understand, right? Like the U.S. can't default. That would be really, really bad. It's a it's a good hostage because it would be a really bad thing to happen. But what is the point of having a debt ceiling? If not to negotiate to take on less debt when you are about to hit it, like that, in a platonic sense of what is this thing? Why does the the ideal form of a debt cap exist? <laughs> it exists to make it so that there's less debt in the future. <laughs> I mean, why is the GOP doing this? Because this means they get to negotiate twice, like. Yeah, the platonic ideal of we should just pay our credit card bill. But it's like, well, no, because there's two credit card wielders. And the one that's responsible for the bill right now is going to use the leverage of paying the bill so the card doesn't get canceled. 
to to institute some spending limits. Of course, that's what's going to happen. That was always what was going to happen. What's and and it says a lot to me that the Democrats in the legislature accept already that there's going to be bargaining, right? Like it's only the White House that's saying we won't negotiate. Whereas you got Joe Manchin on Sunday shows talking about raising the FICA tax cap. You know, like negotiating is already happening, boys. <laughs> like didn't take long. Everyone knows the score here. And it's also very convenient cover for every sober decision maker in Washington who knows that there has to be changes to Medicare and social security in some fashion to like start putting some of those changes into place when they have the chance. Well, everyone knows you get a better deal if you're not actually at the table, right? <laughs> Obviously that's when the best <laughs> deals happen. The greatest deals. Uh, I mean, Social Security and Medicare desperately require, at the minimum, additional revenue. Let's not even talk about like how the, the benefits are structured right now. They're not bringing enough tax revenue. They're going to run out of money, and soon. Like Medicare runs out in like five years now, something like that, like I think 2028. So Social Security barely makes it in the 2030s. Like, we're here. This stuff is like only going to last eight to 12 years. We have to make a decision like now to save them. And a number one thing you can do is increase revenue and not touch the benefits side for the moment. FICA's got an easy way. Raise the cap. Make it so that you're paying that 8.6% on all of your income rather than the first 140000 Because, frankly, it's true. The people who are making more can afford the VIG. And for Medicare, probably just a flat increase to the tax rate. Yeah. Just get it done. Just do it. It's time. People are really bad about understanding the federal budget at like a base level. Like there's a, there's a lot of, you know, if burn um, Bernie, if the well, if the wealthy just paid their fair share, or if we didn't spend so much on defense X, Y, Z social security and Medicare are the only things that matter. They are, they're so much bigger than everything else. Correct. It's, it's it's just hard to overstate how because they're so insolvent, everything else doesn't work. Um, I want to recommend to listeners the uh, recent appearance of federal budget guru extraordinaire Brian Riedel on Jonah Goldberg's podcast, The Remnant. Um, but this is his tweet. This is a short version. Me, Social Security... And Medicare shortfalls, 116 trillion over the next 30 years, will force that's just the shortfall. Will force us to revisit promised benefit levels. I demand reply. I demand to get back what I paid into the system. Brian, your terms are acceptable. <laughs> Most people get back way more than they paid because yeah. it was designed when people died when they were 70 and didn't retire for 30 years. Correct. Like that, if if only they received what they paid back into the system, and I might have social security when I retire. That'd be great. Social so let let's base level take social security will continue to (laughs) exist into even your old age, Andrew. Um, there there's been public pensions for those unable to work dating back before modernity. Okay, so this isn't a new concept. And clearly the richest nation on earth is going to have a program like that. That's just the way it is. And 
you have a huge swath of the population now and in the future will be dependent on its existence, particularly Medicare, quite frankly, because of the expense related to medical care when you get older. So let's stop acting like any of that is negotiable. You have a huge percentage of your population that just will not be able to exist without it. And we have decided to subsidize that need with taxes. Makes sense. Have a need, need revenue, create a program, have taxes separate for those things. They're, they're payroll taxes. Everyone pays them. Everyone on a payroll. Almost everyone pays them. Well, okay. We've got some obvious deficiencies in the system that we haven't addressed in decades that we could address up to and including why is this this weird arbitrary cap on FICA taxes? Sounds Sounds a bit strange that income tax scales all the way up on your earned income, but somehow FICA doesn't? No. Let's just stop that. And suddenly you've got 70 years of of uh, solvency to look forward to for Social Security on that basis alone. If you just uncapped FICA entirely. It doesn't solve the problem forever, but it does a lot. Okay. Yep. And, and, so- and Brian said much the same thing where he's a heritage guy, so you know this is not his his bread and butter take, but you've got to raise revenue at some point. The math just doesn't work otherwise. Yeah. So do that. And then once you've done the easy part and you've secured the future of the program, you can fight a little bit around the edges on some of the particulars to try and create a sustainable system. But that can be the second fight. Do the easy part while we still have the opportunity to do it. And we're not in crisis mode already. And the same with Medicare. Like, if it's just going to require you to increase the Medicare tax, then do it now. <laughs> like the sooner, the better. If you wait, that means you have to increase it more. Do you realize that? Like, or you're going to just start borrowing ungodly amounts of money that are going to be unsustainable. But it's okay. Cause interest rates will never rise. This was the theory, right? This, this is what why, we were talking. Yeah, this was the theory: is that we never had to actually increase these taxes because we'll just be able to borrow the necessary money forever and ever and ever, and there will never be negative consequences forever. Amen. I mean, you're talking about a circumstance where you're going to have so much of the American population that's no longer to be working, and there's going to be so uh, such a reduction in the productivity of the American worker as a consequence of so many of them no longer being able to work that you can't just keep borrowing money and expect that to be sustainable. At a certain point, you're going to have to correct internally for all of this. Wait, wait, wait. actually, I think, I think Canada has a really good solution for this. Oh God. Yeah, it's the assisted suicide on, on demand <laughs> drive through murder by the state. That shit is horrific. Oh God. It's like a horror movie. How much of those accounts have you read? That's the, they're not good. Like people qualifying for immediate access to state assisted suicide because they're depressed or because they can't afford to live. There's a, there's guys like, yeah, what, I don't really want to die. I just can't afford rent anymore. I don't want to be homeless. So we'll just kill you. It's cheaper. It, what a tragedy it is that it really went from people with terminal diseases should have the right to gracefully exit from their existence without just sitting there and suffering, rotting away 
you know, over the course of agonizing weeks when there's no further medical intervention that will help them, which is like a take that 99% of people agree with and makes total sense if, if you've any contact whatsoever with end of life care. And then just a short time later, we're just killing people because they can't afford their rent or they're sad. <laughs> like, holy shit. <laughs> we went from, from norming stuff to post-apocalyptic like dystopia in a fucking hurry here, boys. Do not just, pass go. Do oh, not collect $200. <laughs> like, holy shit. What the fuck is wrong with you in Canada? And it's like why it has to stay illegal. Like there it is. We saw it's it. It's not why it has to stay illegal. It's why public provision of healthcare is a problem. When you see people as a cost center, the the problem becomes removing the cost. Yeah, I mean, we heard all about this in 09, right? With uh death panels. It was mocked. It was mocked, right? The idea that there would be bodies, government bodies that would be determining if you were permitted treatment. Uh, for for your issue, as a consequence of if they decided to pay for it, I'm like, no, that's that's literally what already happens in every socialized system, guys. Like that's they it. Just, and in a way, like the U.S. does kind of overtreat end of life care. There's a lot of like spend millions to get a few more weeks that. You know, I don't want to say that it shouldn't happen, uh, but there's a point where what are, what are you really accomplishing here? Yeah, there's a there is an EV issue at a certain point that's real. I would agree, but it it should not be DC bureaucrats that are making that decision. Absolutely not. And I dare say, people with a, a super high level of economic resources deserves the right to spend all the resources to wring all the fucking blood from the stone if that's what they want to do. Um, the I, I would also say that the United States overtreats for novel diseases as well that are very expensive to treat. That does happen, and that's not necessarily a big economic ad. But yeah, such is the price of having the right to pursue as much care as you can literally afford to to proceed to secure and having a backup system that essentially guarantees you access to all of that same treatment, albeit in a deprioritized fashion for the more expensive things. But like people are getting treated for cancer and all of that on Medicare all the time, you know, like very serious diseases and receiving excellent care for their trouble. Um, you know, the state has an interest in that. Um, it may not be premium care at the private hosp- best private hospital in the country, but it's extremely good care. So with that being the case, these things have to be, anyway, to, to go back to the financial question about all of this, it's a shame that it took the Republicans winning a single house of Congress for there to be some sober discussion about this terrible looming financial requirement. We have had been been warned about for our entire adult lives that we have to deal with. And now we just don't have a choice, but to do it now. Um, But I'm glad it's happening. I'm glad the discussion's occurring. I'm glad it looks like something is going to be negotiated because that's the way everyone's already acting. 
Can we talk about Matt Iglesias? Matty Yikes? Matty Two Takes? Which is exactly what he's good for? That was a good one. Matty Two Takes. <laughs> so Matt Iglesias is a particular frustration of mine because he has this like aura of a serious person who seriously crunches numbers and seriously thinks about things in a serious way. And doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> it's, he's, uh, he's just like vaguely for Medicare for all, just because that's the orthodox position to have. And I get frustrated with, like, if you're just like a AOC type, who's like, I want these things because I'm fundamentally a, a conflict theorist and think that the reason that we don't have Norway style social welfare is because there are evil Republicans. Like, okay, I understand. I think you're very wrong, but I understand. You're just not even stupid. I mean, it's simple enough. If you're like another one who gets under my skin is Nate Silver. Um, Not Nate Silver. Shoot. Nate, the other one. No. Yeah, it is Nate Silver. Okay. Um, (laughs) Never mind. Fuck Nate Silver. Who like he's even more serious of a number cruncher than I am in some ways, but they'll just, they just don't take budget seriously. And like, Hey, we've got this massive shortfall that's unaccounted for. What's the plan for that? Besides, you know, there's just this like orthodox democratic position that it's gauche and, or right coded, conservative coded to care or refer dear listener to the, the, the evil of banality, which is the greatest title ever made, uh, which is like, if we don't have a good defense for something, just pretend it's banal to care. Yeah, it's true. This is a common defense mechanism. <laughs> I think it's a matter of lost perspective in part, actually, as to why they, there doesn't appear to be a, a lot of appetite for sober policy discussion on these critical topics on the left. They are I'm so frustrated because there's not, there's not a coherent theory behind it. There's just a Medicare for all would be good because it would be good for X, Y, Z policy reasons that might make sense from like, there are real arguments in favor of like, downsizing the insurance industry or some other efficiencies that can be gained or just it sucks that people can through no fault of their own end up with a six figure bill and just kind of be SOL. Those are all real, but there's no coherent theory behind why the deficit would be sustainable. Like implicit tears. That's what I'm getting at is they're lazy because all of their political energy has gone towards the personal politics of their disdain for Donald Trump for more than six years. Even out of even before that, like Obama had like these supposedly serious staffers. But they just never took any of this seriously. They did. They did sequestration. They talked about the need to like restructure social security and potentially decrease the benefits. I know it's a long time ago, but his serious staffers actually had this clocked and it was, yeah. And it was Trump who actually told 
Paul Ryan and he's not going to be allowed to cut Social Security in 2017, if you recall. Because that's all, Paul, that's all Paul Ryan wanted to do. Is he was like, it's time. We've got the power. We've got the position. We can actually make all, all, all the changes that we want to make to the system now that we have enough grip on things to, to make it happen. And it was Donald Trump who said, I would veto that. I will not let you. Because Donald Trump understands boomers and knows that the only way he would ever get reelected is by making sure that they liked him. So his base political instincts probably prevented us from taking historic action necessary to rectify the situation. But it it was it was Donald Trump that cut the conversation off in 2017. And for Democrats, they've had nothing to do but beat up on Trump even after he left office since then. They've had no they've had no concept of how to approach these questions except um, you know, spend more money on on giving away cash out the door for coronavirus. Like there's just been no space to talk about it, no space to think about it. Cause it's either COVID or Trump is a threat to democracy for more than half a decade. So they're atrophied. They don't know. They don't know. How to, they don't know how to say anything, but you know, um, uh, socialized medicine is good. Please, please give it PLZ. I'm upset that you're right, but <laughs> it frustrates me to no end that there there are these these supposedly serious people just you know 113 trillion shortfall over 30 years. And they're like, okay, but what if we double our obligations? It'd probably be fine. And they they'll make the argument that like, oh, M4A would actually be cheaper than our current system in aggregate. You don't, the government is not an aggregate. It's not, I don't think it would be, but it, uh, you can't, you have to like take all that out in taxes, which at the risk of being uh, unacceptably naive in applying my economics 101 textbook, the idea of debt weight, dead weight losses from taxation are real. Yeah. It's not just the money that gets taken out of someone's pocket. It's transactions that don't happen. It's money lost through because the political process is inefficient. It, it would also have to be a level of taxation that dwarfs the current amount that people currently pay for health insurance, by the way. I mean, people think like, oh, I'll just pay my health insurance money to a new government program. and six hundred. No, it would cost you four to five times as much. Every person would be paying that as well. It would be a massive, massive income drain that would be required to set up the system. And by the way, and this is the bigger problem to me, uh, you need probably 20-year head start to train the people necessary so that you actually have a medical system that can absorb the amount of people that will suddenly be using it at high volume. You know, like right now, as we have lamented, there's a strong cartel influence on training medical professionals in the United States and you don't have capacity in healthcare providers or healthcare resources or buildings to satisfy the sudden influx that you would have. And who knows this better than say great Britain with an NHS system 
that is in free fall as they are unprepared to deal with the huge influx of migrants that they've suddenly have that want to make full and ready access to premium Western healthcare now that they can just use it whenever they like. I mean, do you have re- a per- go ahead. Do you have a primary care physician? I do. Really? I don't. I have a primary care physician that I see at least once a year. Oh. I get an annual checkup. Oh. Yeah. And I, it's, uh, my primary care physician was my primary care physician when I was in high school. I just independently decided to go back to him when I moved back to here. And he was a young doctor then, and now he's like in his 50s. <laughs> you know, like I caught him at the, right at the beginning of his primary care career, and now he's like in his mid-career, you know? Nice. So, my experience with the healthcare system is in roughly two to three minute chunks whenever I feel something serious enough to need to go to an urgent care. I mean, I, I do that I, too. And I think a lot of people interact with in that way with a mid-level with like a nurse practitioner. He's like, I know when I have a ear infection. Can you just give me some amoxicillin? Yeah. And that's fine. But I think it, it pays dividends to have a regular check-in with your doctor. Think about the things that have been going on in your life. Consider like what, you know, if you're you're due for a certain vaccination, um, if you need to get your blood taken, then they can, you know, run metabolic tests. Like this is all real stuff. But not everyone can do that. And not in like a, some people are underprivileged way, but in like a, there aren't enough doctors for everyone to do that. Right. If everyone figured out to do that, there would be too much demand on the system. And there would, nothing would cause that faster than socialized medicine in the United States. So you need 20 years to make enough doctors because you're going to have to get them all through med school and then all through their boards. And then you're going to have the next generation after that that's trained by those that expanded class. And then you have the next generation after that that's trained by that expanded class. And then you'd have enough people. Or, and hear me out here, what we could do instead – it's nothing. <laughs> and then when everything goes up in flames, we'll just blame the current president or whoever happens to be in charge when everything blows up. Yeah. That sound like a plan? Yeah. I mean, I do actually think there's appetite to, to do s- some things now. It's just that Democrats that know what's up need to use cover. And so they're going to happily use the GOP as cover. And then blame them for whatever unpopular parts of the, the you know, the, the compromise takes. And then they'll actually do this again probably a few months later when they actually go after the budget for 2024. You know, like this is only, this is, this is the first bite at the apple. We're in Can for we a fun. We've, we've mentioned shoot the hostage a few times. Uh, how long can we do extraordinary measures? And... What happens if we can't anymore? Like, uh, we're not actually going to shoot the hostage, right? I think that the speaker vote was a clear uh, sign that McCarthy's price for being speaker is he has to be willing to. And I I think that's what it communicated it very well in a way. So that like now everyone knows it's serious. Like he's like, I have to do this or I will be immediately voted out as speaker, right? Like that is the price. I promise this. 
So I'm doing it. And these fucking psychos are willing to allow us to just default on our bonds. So if you know that, and I know that let's deal. I don't think that the Democrats allow themselves to permit the default by not negotiating, but I think the Republican crazies have actually done everyone a silent favor by being so crazy (laughs) that everyone will be like, it's like with Trump and international politics when he's such a fucking loose cannon. Everyone was just really cool for four years. Oh yeah. This is real. (laughs) And so everyone's like, let's just wait till this guy's gone before we do anything guys. Like Russia's sitting there like, no, not right now. This could go either way. And I don't, it's not worth the risk. There, there, there are benefits to being able to credibly signal that you're a little bit insane. Because you can, you can always predict what a rational actor will do. So everyone knows Gates and all of them are insane. And if McCarthy makes a move to compromise, they'll immediately petition the chair to discharge him. And then suddenly the house is in chaos and can't do shit, right? So they know that's what will happen. So, okay, we got to talk it out then. I first heard th- about this strategy. Uh, in the context of a game theory class where Don Boudreau was giving a lecture, he does like applied game theory for, uh, I believe the state department in terms of how to approach Iran and he, his models are all about the Iranian leadership is constantly trying to signal craziness externally and sanity internally because there's a lot of like the power brokers who have a lot of power and a lot of investment in the stability of in regional stability and their place of power within the organizing structure who want to know that they're not about to get glassed by the United States and Iran needing to signal to like Pakistan and Syria that they're really serious about blowing Israel up and they're going to do it any minute now. Uh, And like trying to balance these two things. It was really interesting. It's interesting to consider how hollow that all feels in these days in terms of Iran, right? Like everyone knows you're not going to, you're not actually going to make a move on Israel. Now we all know this. We, we, Maybe there was a, a spot where you had everyone convinced you were just crazy enough to to give it a, give it an old college try, try to give the Jews what for. <laughs> but now at this point, we know you lack any capacity to pull that down, <laughs> right? You don't have the domestic support, and Israel has been gaming this scenario out for their entire existence and is prepared to turn you into uh, nothing but a distant memory. So, turns out. N- Nukes, good at guaranteeing security. Yeah. <laughs> Who knew? And so if, if we all know that's the case now and that like Israel is weapons free on defending itself and they've made their own friends, they've sealed the deal on all that Abraham Accord stuff. Like they've pulled everyone got in a room together and was like, you know who we hate more than each other? Iran. <laughs> everyone's like, oh, that's right. <laughs> like the Saudis are like, boy, guys, you got a real fucking point over there. <laughs> It's like, is it really just, are you going to let the Palestinians be the ones to prevent all of us from figuring out the real problem is those guys? And they're like, you know what? No, we're not. <laughs> like, I think, I think we figured it out. I think we've all come to an understanding with each other. And so with that in place, Iran 
acting irrationally when it comes to their weapons program. But this is probably why you had saw the collapse of the negotiations even before uh, Russia made it impossible to continue. Of like, what are we negotiating for anymore? These these guys are not going to try and get a nuke anymore. They know what will happen. <laughs> like, <laughs> like nothing good for them, right? Like all of a sudden Saudi Arabia is just getting a few handed to them by their new buddies, right? Like that's the that's the threat of the Abraham Accords. They've never they haven't yet it's brilliant. Everyone knows that Israel and Saudi Arabia have an under the table handshake agreement at this point. Because they've allowed all the airspace, they've allowed all of the agreements of all the satellite states of Saudi Arabia to make these deals with Israel. It's all of these signals that are in place to say, hey, Iran, if you get a nuke, we're going to seal this deal with Israel, and it's going to include them handing us nukes. And then we will have them. So fuck off. How did Israel get nukes? They don't have any. (laughs) It's like, we're all just going to be out and proud and be like, fuck you. We have nukes too. Just like the old, you know, the, the India Pakistan thing, right? Like as soon as one tested a nuke, the other one tested one. It's like, everyone be cool. (laughs) Like (laughs) everyone be cool. (laughs) Same situation where it's like, we have nukes. And then in Saudi Arabia, we'll be like, thanks to our new, our, our new friends, our new Jewish friends have given us a gift. <laughs> Everyone be cool. <laughs> right? And everyone's like, all right, I guess we're going to be cool. And that's still bad for Iran. Now there's there's more people with nuclear weapons around them who, who would be I, willing I, to use them against them. Iran would be six months out from testing and Israel would glass them. I don't think they glass them on. I, I think that. Israel is confident enough now in their early warning and their deployment of their weapons that they feel like they can allow them to have the capacity because they're so far ahead of them technologically and knowing if they're going to use them or not. Like Israel, the U S Israeli intelligence um, relationship is so good because Israel develops so much of the undergirding of the signet that U S has. And we can just spy on whoever we want with impunity at this point. Like our, infiltration in technological networks is profound and that's partially because israel developed a lot of the tools we use to do that so how good is israel's probably great and if that's the case then all right yeah you have a nuke you so much as think about putting that on a warhead on a missile and start fueling it there'll be no persians from 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 sheen sea to shining sea (laughs) like that's the way it is and you know, it's, this is a similar threat that's been made to Russia over the last uh, 12 months. When all of the nuclear saber raveling was happening, you know, the word is that the communication was made of like, listen, here, let's be clear here. We, no one knows exactly what will happen if Russia uses a nuclear weapon, but the United States guarantees that we will kill Vladimir Putin. He personally will not survive. We know where he is. We know how to reach him. We know how to kill him. And we will execute on that immediately. No matter how deep the bunker is. It's not, bunker there's no bunkers are deep enough. We got you. Like, we got you. If that's the case, then suddenly everyone has a, a, a reason to be more rational and that's helpful. But if you're a rad, there's so much more to be gained from just not going down that road than deciding I want to have more nuclear powered states that I'm rivals with on my borders. You know? 
who are incentivized potentially to be the ones to pull the trigger first, right? Why don't we limit that to one state actor rather than expanding it to two? <laughs> I suffered. I suffered through this debate recently, so I'm going to make you and our listeners suffer. But uh, the guy was making a case that there will be voluntary nuclear disarmament because they aren't actually good weapons. And his evidence for this was that they were considered to be used in the Korean War, and they were considered, no, that would be a bad idea, so we won't. And they have been considered to be used in several times since Japan and decided against for practical reasons. All of that is true. But they make a real good guarantee of your territorial integrity. Like, they're not good offensive weapons. That's completely true. It's it's just generally true of strategic bombing of civilian infrastructure. It doesn't actually accomplish much. No. There's there's more civilian infrastructure than there is bombs, even if you bomb all of London during the Blitz. It doesn't do anything. But if you have planet go boom option as a button, you can't really, like, you can't roll tanks through their territory because they might just push the button. Right. And that enforces and a level undefeated of... undefeated in that role. Just completely undefeated in that role. It, they have a tendency to support global stability. You know, if everyone has understanding incentive structures in play. Well, that's a little... The, the system of alliances that led to 100 years of peace post-Napoleon worked until it didn't. Yeah, but there was the world wasn't going to be destroyed if it failed. <laughs> there kind of was. Like, if you live through the Napoleonic era, and even, like, in the aftermath of World War I, it's not the same as in the nuclear age, but that's a lot of rubble and a whole generation of dead and traumatized kids. It, oh, it's still it, apocalyptic in its own small way, sure. Granted. I do have a nuclear weapon story from business school, though. Oh, boy. Yeah, we, we didn't went, fire one. No, we, we once did a negotiate um, pra- you know, sort of practical example of two parties who have an index card that is a nuclear weapon. And you, you're trying to negotiate with each other, knowing that you can simply at whatever time you wish, destroy the world. And the idea was to somehow like, how can you convince someone to give that power up? Right. That, that's the difficulty that you're communicating through this exercise. It's like, this is an impossible thing to solve because each of you have, no matter what the rest of your bargaining position is, both of you have this option. So how does that impact the things you're talking about? And when it was my turn, I made an impassioned speech to the person I was against that we needed to stand up and set an example for everyone by tearing up our nuclear weapon cards and then having a good faith negotiation by unilateral disarmament. And he agreed. And we both tore up our cards, except I tore up a blank card and I said, well, I'm the only one with a nuke now. So you're going to do, you're going to give me everything or I'm just going to destroy you. I got an A. Remember how I said that people like you terrify me? (laughs) cleaned out some poor Chinese student that way. <laughs> I said, you have to give me everything. You have to, you have to surrender to me or I just destroy you. That's terrifying. It was a novel approach. I found a bunch of blank index cards and I put one in my pocket and I went up there and I switched them and we did the big thing and I said, I didn't destroy mine. So 
whole place died. <laughs> and in fact, I, I mean, I feel a little bad because I did take advantage of a Chinese exchange student, you know, who was there for, for his MBA. <laughs> and he was, you know, very earnestly going along with what I was saying because I'm giving him this great speech. I'm not sure, like, a native English speaker, a native English speaker might have pulled, picked up the note I was, like, bullshitting, you know, like, when I think back about on it. No, zero percent. I, I, <laughs> I, I have been bullshitted by you before. <laughs> it is indistinguishable from what you say. You must only use this power for good. Do you understand me? With great power comes great responsibility. <sighs> on that note. <laughs> Thank you for listening to a true episode of Replacement Level Morality. And we'll see you next week. Bye.